Today is what we observe in the church calendar as Pentecost Sunday. How many of you actually knew that when you came in today? Okay. This is Pentecost Sunday. Originally, Pentecost was a Jewish holiday held 50 days after Passover. But you and I celebrate it as the birthing of the church of the Lord Jesus, which took place in the upper room 50 days after the resurrection of Christ, where we see there the emergence of the Holy Spirit coming upon the church. And so if you want to take your Bibles and turn to what book? The book of Acts. Turn the book of Acts to chapter 1. Feel free to go there now. And what we see is the disciples are with the resurrected Jesus who is about to ascend into heaven to be at the right hand of God. But we also know this, that the disciples were about to enter into a time which would be considered the most difficult time in Christianity to be a follower of Christ. And that would not only be for that first century, but for the next three centuries, you would die or you'd be persecuted for being a follower of Christ. And I have to wonder, along with many of you, how far we are today in the United States from being in that same circumstance as Christians. Uh, but when you, look at the, um, when you look at the book of Acts and you see what Jesus was saying to His disciples, there's three things that He made abundantly clear that if you are going to follow Him, and He was saying to, it to them at that time, there's three things. Number one, you're going to be completely fearless, He tells them. Number two, you're going to be absurdly happy and joyful all the time. And number three, you are going to be in constant trouble. What a promise. Number one, completely fearless. Why don't you put a measuring stick on yourself with these things today? You're going to be completely fearless. You're going to be absurdly happy and joyful all the time, and you're going to be in constant trouble. How many of you got one out of three? Let me see your hand. Let me, let me guess which one you got. <clears throat> but here's also the promise. Don't be concerned because when you feel like your circumstance is over your head, just remember that it is under God's feet. Somebody say hallelujah to that today. Three centuries of an extremely difficult time in what is considered to be 29 persecutions. Some of you have done some study on this, I know, in the past. There's a book by William Bennett who served as Secretary of Education from 1985 to 1988 under uh, President Ronald Reagan. He has a book called Tried by Fire. It's the story of the first 1,000 years of Christianity. It is somewhat of an updated version of Fox's Book of Martyrs, which walks you through these 29 different persecutions that have come to the church. And how in the midst of these persecutions, what we discover is that the church did not fold, the church did not banish and go away, but in the midst of persecutions, the church flourished and grew. Hallelujah. With persecution starting all the way back to um, names that come up such as Nero after the ascension of Jesus and moving toward others like Diocletian and others who have been portrayed in movies like uh, Commodus and Marcus Aurelius who were featured in the, that man movie Gladiator. Those two that I just mentioned, they were portrayed in that movie, but what is forgotten and what is not portrayed in that movie is that they were strict and unflinching persecutors of Christians. And in the first three centuries, to be a follower of Christ meant that you would be persecuted. In fact, in that movie, 
Gladiator, I'm told that Ridley Scott, who was the director of the movie, he left out what they call, or what they've come to refer to as the deleted scene, which was the moment just before the gladiators came out. And here's what I, I hear about. It was a minute and 16 second scene or, or, or part of the movie whereby they sent Christians into the arena, and there's a minute 16 seconds in the bowels of the arena where the main character is looking out through a little portal. That's what you, that's what you see. And, and, and what he sees is a Christian father with his wife and children huddled around them and a lion pacing across uh, behind them. And you see only the back, that, the, and the cinematography that's done there, the camera is behind the, uh, the head of the, of the gladiator who's looking through that portal, that thin portal, and he sees that the lion is climbing up on the back of the father, and suddenly the scene stops right there. And someone asked Ridley Scott, he said, why didn't you put the whole scene into the movie? And he said, I could not properly portray how severely persecuted the Christians actually were for their faith in Jesus Christ. And as you and I sit here today in 2018, we really have no idea how savage and brutal has been the persecution of our Christian brothers and sisters who have gone on before us. We hear about the persecuted church, and on a regular basis in our prayer service on Sunday night, we pray for today's persecuted church and the parts of the world where we know today uh, Christians are being persecuted. But because that has not been our, um, our life and our experience, we can tend to almost dismiss it or, or not give it the understanding or the value of, uh, of what it actually is. It was the great apologist Francis Schaeffer who then asked, or when he was asked, why did they kill the early Christians? Francis Schaeffer, I was privileged to accompany Des one day years and years and years ago uh, to a conference in Dallas. We heard him speak. He was asked the question, why did they kill the early Christians? And Francis Schaeffer gave this answer. He said, he said Christians were not killed for worshiping Jesus. They were killed because they would not worship and acknowledge other gods of the Roman Empire. They were not killed for worshiping Jesus. They were killed because they would not worship all the others. And Francis Schaeffer went on to explain the rationale of the persecutors, which was this. They said, you can worship Jesus all you want, but you also have to call every other religion legitimate as well. Ladies and gentlemen, does that sound familiar to you at all? Does that sound like anything that we, are, we have begun to see in our own country? Because we have to be tolerant of everything, and that's exactly what we are experiencing in our generation today. You can be a Christian, and that's fine. Have your religion, that's fine. Keep it to yourself, that's fine. But you also have to call everyone else legit for whatever they believe. And you better say that every other religion is fine also. But here is the problem that you and I face. Jesus does not leave that open for us to think that or to conduct ourselves that way because Jesus is above all others. He is the King of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. He has no equal. He is the only way to the Father, and there is none like Him. Do I get a witness in the house today? And when every other religion says, you die and pay for this, Jesus says, no, 
I'll die for you, just as we celebrated in communion today. And folks, there's one, one and only one thing to call that, and that is it's amazing grace that he has given to us. They hated the Christians, not because they were Christians, but because the Christians would not say that all other religions are just as legitimate as Christianity. And Jesus said, in order for me to prepare you, saying to his disciples, in order for me to prepare you, not only for what was going to be the hardest season, which could well be a carbon copy of what we may be soon to face as a country, he says this, I have got to equip you, uh, to, uh, equip you to face what's coming ahead. Remembering that he said, you will be crazy fearless. You will be absurdly happy, but get ready because you're going to be in a lot of trouble if you're going to follow Jesus Christ. But here's the good news. Jesus said, don't worry, because I'm going to give you help for what comes ahead. How many of you are glad that we have help in the Lord? He says, when I leave, I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I'm going to leave you a special gift, and it's the gift of the Holy Spirit. And here's what we can be assured of, and that is this. When God gives you a gift... When God gives you a special gift, here's what we know about it. It is good and perfect. Amen? You will never get any gift from God that is anything other than good and perfect. You know what the Bible says in James chapter 1, verse 17? For every gift, and every, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Can I just have a minute to separate those two words and just put a, a little bit of understanding to it about the gift that you have received and the gift I have received? I just want to unpack it for a second because these two words, good and perfect, they speak to us on how God is going to equip us for the season in which we're about to enter. We can read that verse so easily and kind of almost gloss over, yeah, that's good, it's a good and perfect gift. No, but there's more to it than that, just as what he provided for the early church. When it comes to this word good, we understand that it, uh, when you dig into the root of it, it is what is known in our English language as a superlative. Now, a superlative in our language is typically a word that we would put an EST on the end of it. It would be like this. We might say, in May in Texas, it can be hot. In June, it gets hotter, but in August, it is at its Hottest, and that's the superlative, the hottest. And you can use that same superlative idea for all kinds of things. Like you can say, Pastor Josh is a cool dude, right? Right? Give a little love to Pastor Josh, yes. Pastor Josh is a cool dude, but then there's Pastor Michael who is cooler. Sorry, Josh. But then, but then... There's Pastor Dez, who is the coolest. <clears throat> That's the superlative, okay? And what James was saying, where would you think I was going with that, by the way? <laughs> what James was saying is this, church. When God gives you a gift, it is the best it's the superlative. There's nothing better. Nothing can get any better than any gift that God is going to give you. And let's be reminded today on this Pentecost Sunday, he has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit, and it is the best. Hallelujah. 
But it's not just good. The Bible says in James, it's good and it's perfect. When someone gives us something, we might say, oh, thank you for that gift. It's, it's, it's perfect. It's, it's just what I needed. It's just what I wanted. And the word perfect in the book of James means the gift is perfect. It's exactly what you need for this moment. It's exactly what you need for this season of time. It's usable for right now. It's so perfect. It's custom fit. It's custom designed to be the gift that you need right now. I'm talking about today in May of 2018. The gift of the Holy Spirit is not only the best gift that you can have. It's the superlative, but it is the perfect gift. God has given you a gift for today that is custom designed and custom fit to be exactly what you have needed of, somebody ought to be glad about it. And we know it's not just any old gift, it's the best gift you can have, and that's what you need. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. And before he was ascended into heaven, he says, I want you to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So look with me to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I know you know this. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What Jesus was saying to the disciples is the same thing he's saying to you and to me today, and that's this. You're about to enter into the hardest time to be a Christian, but the best thing he can do the, the, the greatest thing he can do is to give us a gift that will help us face that difficult time. Now, I understand sometimes discussion on the Holy Spirit can be controversial. But I want us to see this this morning just the way the Bible ex- explains it, just exactly what the Word says. The infilling of the Holy Spirit, uh, now the Bible doesn't say it like this, but it's kind of like Superman's uh, phone booth, Okay. You didn't think that was coming either, did you? Because here's what it means. When your infilling takes place, you come out not normal, or as you did, you come out absolutely changed. That's the correlation there. And the reason for that is because the gift is perfect and it's good. It's the best gift you can get from God because it's superlative good. And it's something that's perfectly fit, custom fit for you right now. And not only that, but when you have been touched by the Holy Spirit, you know what, folks? People around you know it. They know it. Let me explain it by talking about something that I absolutely do not understand. I do not understand popcorn. I don't get it. You take this bag of popcorn, you throw it in this little room called a microwave, and it's while it's in this room, all these kernels, are they're all experiencing the same thing. They're all packed in there. They're, they're all um, experiencing the same microwaves. But when it's all said and done, did you know that there are some of those kernels that are so stubborn, they will not be changed. Though they're in the same place, hearing the same buzz, under the same light, in the same situation, but they will not pop. How many know what I'm talking about? When we sang this morning, I couldn't help but notice, let the glory of the Lord rise among us. And some of you were absolutely almost beside yourself in exhilarated worship unto Jesus, responding with everything that is within you. But I, you know, I know it's hard to say this this morning, but there are just some kernels in this house this morning. 
Who knows what I'm talking about? And for whatever reason, they just don't seem to respond. But here's what I want to tell you today on this Pentecost Sunday. The Holy Spirit has come to fill us, to touch us, to renew us. And for those of you who've got the hands in the pocket worship method, I want you to, I'm going to serve warning to you, this may be your popping day. In Acts 1-8, he said, when the Spirit comes, what's going to happen? Two things. You will receive power, and you will be my... That's what he says. Two things. You're going to receive power. You'll be his witness. Well, let's just see exactly what the Bible says about it. You'll receive power. I am so fortunate, like many of you, I was raised by very godly parents. My dad was a pastor all my life. You know that. I was raised um, with the privilege of sitting at many uh, meal tables, typically after church. We always went out after church and had these elongated times, and my folks would get one more cup of coffee. How many know? But I was privileged to sit with great church leaders and incredible preachers, incredible pastors, incredible missionaries, incredible evangelists, and and I, I learned a lot just by listening and being around them. And so, therefore, I heard the gospel at a very early age, and I responded to that gospel at a very early age. And I began uh, working in ministry then at a very early age. There wasn't a lot of choice in the house I was raised. It's what you were going to do. I literally started directing choirs when I was 12 years old, and I was not afraid to do whatever it took to get people to sing. Um, if I had to turn cartwheels, I'd turn cartwheels to get you to sing, whatever it took. And that's because that's what we did. So my, my teen years were spent not experimenting with sex, drugs, and alcohol. My teen years were spent in ministry and street evangelism and producing a a local live gospel music television program every Saturday night, all while I was going through school. But to some people, my testimony might sound boring because I did not lead a life of rebellion against the church or a life of rebellion against my parents. But here's what I want to tell you that what my testimony is today. My testimony is that of God's saving and keeping power. If I had an addiction as a teenager, it was to Oreos. That's the only addiction that I had. And then double stuff came along. <clears throat> but here's what I remember. Um, and I didn't understand it then, I'm not sure I understand it now. I remember that some people tried to come to me to say that they were more qualified to minister and to lead others to Christ to me because they had experienced the world that I had not experienced. And that the real sinners can relate more to us, Dan, than than they can to you. You've just been raised in the church, what do you know? And they were saying to me that they could, they, they could minister better because they, they had lived that life. They knew that journey. They knew uh, uh, the same experience as others that they were leading to Christ. And I am extremely grateful that God can and still does transform lives. But I'm thinking this, the best way to effective ministry is to experience the world. It just did not seem right to me. And then I learned the whole reason for Acts chapter 1. The best way Jesus said to minister to the world is not to experience the world, but to experience God through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the best way to minister. Scripture does not say, taste and see that the world is no good. Am I right about it? It does not say that. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. He was saying this, once you get a taste of Jesus, you won't want what's out there, no matter who told you about it. 
Because there's nothing that can satisfy your soul like a relationship with Jesus. It used to be a song, only Jesus can satisfy your soul. Well, forgive me if this seems a bit extreme, but when I th- began thinking about that, when I was always kind of put in my place and supposed to be quiet and, 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 and not be as involved in ministry as others wanted, I don't see Jesus saying to Peter, now Peter, you need to now go out and do drugs so that you can better minister to drug addicts. Mary, you, you need to become a prostitute so that you can minister to the ladies on the street. And Thomas, we need you to become an alcoholic so that you can... No, he didn't say that. He didn't say, I want you to experience sin. He said, I want you to experience the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Because if you can experience God and the power that he's going to give you, you can know that that will lead people from bondage and sin to a life-transforming experience in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. So when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, he gives you a power to face anything that's ahead of you. Can I get an amen to that? I discovered a really interesting story from the Winter Olympics that took, Winter Olympics that took place in Nagano, Japan in 1998. Uh, I found it somehow or given to me. Something very interesting happened. There were times in those Winter Olympics when they had to shut down some of the events for a day or maybe even two due to the extreme weather on the mountains of Nagano. The Olympics officials expected that to be the case, and they were somewhat prepared for it. But here was, here was the phenomenon that took place. At the top of the mountain, they said, was this little grove of trees that while people could not even see their hand in front of them for the, the, uh, the blizzard conditions and the, the, uh, uh, the blinding wind with snow that came, there was this little grove of trees that they saw uh, that it was blooming and thriving in, in the dead of winter and producing fruit. So while they were bummed out that uh, some of the events had to be shut down, they still couldn't help but be amazed that this grove of trees was thriving and growing and, and, and fruit producing. And reading the story, I have to tell you, it, it, it took my thoughts to Acts chapter 1 and 2 that we're looking at today. Where the Spirit of God descended on those who were gathered there, you know the story, and came upon them with cloven tongues of fire. Well, the story goes that geologists were called during that Winter Olympics and sent up to the mountaintop to try to determine why, why, is there an answer why these trees are blooming and producing fruit in the most dreadful of conditions? And you know what they discovered? They discovered that the roots underneath the trees were touching volcanic activity, which meant that while it was snowing on top, while it was dreadful on top, while the harsh winds were destructive on top, they were experiencing fire underneath them where nobody else could see it. Are you getting this yet? And as a Holy Ghost-filled believer, it reminds me that it does not matter what's going on around me. It doesn't matter what's taking place uh, uh, all on this side and that side and all the stuff. We still can be completely joyful and happy all the time because these roots are touching the fire of God and that makes the difference in a spirit-filled believer. Roots are experiencing the indwelling Holy Spirit. Somebody ought to have a hallelujah today. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. 
And I love the fact that the Word tells us that the first part of us that He touches when the Holy Spirit comes is the most untamed part that you and I have. The tongue. That tongue that no man can tame. And God says, I can tame it. When he says, when I baptize you with the Holy Spirit, I'm not going after your legs. I'm not going after your arms. I'm not even going after your brain. I'm going after the most untamable part, which James says no man can tame. And all over the book of Acts, whether it was speaking in tongues or giving a word of prophecy or a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. And in fact, if you read uh, Acts chapter 4, it says there that when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they spoke with boldness through the tongue. And God wants to take that tongue of yours and proclaim the glory of the name of Jesus. If you will open up your heart... And allow it to touch fire, that fire that's available to you. God will take the most untamable part of you and use it to exalt Christ. But he says, the gift that I'm giving you is going to help you face the hardest season that you will ever possibly go through. And I can tell you this, church, this is my testimony, that in my hardest season, on my hardest days, without fail, this guy right here has learned a long time ago to lift my hands and lift my heart and cry out to God with my hallelujah and say, God, fill me again with your Holy Spirit, for I have nothing else to offer. I have nothing else to work with. I have nothing else to give. I have nothing else to see me through this moment of my life. That's why I need you to fill me today with the Holy Spirit. For this day, I need the good gift, the superlative gift that is custom fit for this season of my life. Who's with me this morning? Jesus promised power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then he says, you shall be my witnesses. He did not say you will be my attorneys. No offense to the attorneys in the room. He said, you will be my witnesses. As a pastor, I get called on from time to time to appear in court. People get into all kinds of situations, and on occasion it reaches the point where their pastor must be called in to testify for them or possibly be a character witness. Such was the case for me just about six months ago was the last time I was in a courtroom for one of our congregation members. Many of you have been in a courtroom, and you know how it goes. Up walks the defense attorney, and He simply starts giving facts. This is John. He's my client. He's ready to plead guilty, Your Honor, and fall upon the mercy of the court. And somehow that attorney can say all that with absolutely no emotion whatsoever. Now, I understand it's his profession. I understand it's what he does every day. Nobody's expecting him to cry over it. But still, they can, you know, I noticed this one last time I was in the court. It can be rather just cold and calculated. And though John may be his client, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily connected any other way. But then when you put a witness on the stand, the emotion begins to come out, as was this case for me my last time in court. Before I was called to the witness stand, there were several others who were called to testify before me. And I watched as they worked hard to maintain their composure while while being asked some very probing and, frankly, difficult questions to answer. And sometimes I would notice they would take a minute to just sort of take a breath and maybe even look away, take a deep breath, and to regain that composure. And then sometimes they would be responding to the attorney's uh, questions, and 
You could see in their response, even though they were talking and trying to be direct and forthright about it, a tear would roll down their cheek. And here's how I think this applies to us today, and that is this. You can be a Christian and simply articulate facts. You can know all the facts that there are about being a Christian and about understanding the Word of God without it ever touching your heart. You can be a Christian and like attorneys, I know I'm picking on attorneys, be completely detached from the dynamic of life in Jesus. But Jesus is saying when you become a Christian, I don't want you simply to know the facts or just have enough information to be able to debate, and many people love to debate. That's not the ultimate plan. No, 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 no. When you become a Christian, I want you, Jesus says, to experience the transforming power so that when they put you on the witness stand of your life, you can be the first to testify that Jesus never fails because it's coming from the fire that's within you because you've opened your heart to be touched by the fire of God. Those of us who were privileged to be close to Pastor Des during his time as pastor became familiar with so many of his Concepts of wisdom seemed endless. And it was often that I would see a young adult, possibly who had been challenged by university, or possibly they had been influenced by other teachings and other philosophies, and they would come and talk with Des and either want to debate or, or whatever. And the best way to describe the typically young person, not necessarily, but typically young person who was speaking with Pastor Des would be to say this, they were grappling with their faith. Okay grappling with their faith. Of course, Pastor Des was fully capable of going the lengths and depths of any philosophical conversation they wanted to have, and then some. But at the end of it all, at the end of the conversation, if I was privileged to be a part of it, and I was often, I watched as Pastor Des would look at that young person with eyes of sincerity that I can't even describe to you. And with the heart of a pastor, he would lean forward and he would say something like, like this, Dear one, let your mind expand. Let your mind grow. Explore the magnificence of all there is to learn and know. But please, he would implore them, but please, to the same degree that you allow your mind to grow, your heart must grow commensurately to the same extent. Please, don't just allow your mind to grow without your heart growing. And Jesus said, you are not to do witnessing. He said, I want you to be a witness. For when the Holy Spirit touches you, witnessing is not just something that you do at certain times or just on a mission trip or, or relegated to just one uh, aspect of your life. But when the Holy Spirit touches you, you will be a witness, whether it's uh, on your campus, your school campus, or your job, or your neighborhood, or maybe on the side of a soccer field with other parents as you're watching your child play soccer. You can be a witness because it's not based on a time frame. It's not based upon some sort of a man-made structure. But when the Spirit of God is in you, you don't do something. You become something for the glory of the name of Jesus. When he fills you, you become a witness. Can I get an amen? Becky and I have been married this year 44 years. And like every other marriage in the house, we've worked through a few issues. Amen? That's the quietest amen I've had all morning. And uh, I learned early on, <clears throat> um, 
some things that, about how this, was, this whole thing was going to work. And that was this, that you know, we would go into maybe a fast food place, and I would walk up and say, okay, I'll take a burger, make it a double, cheese, everything, no onions, and uh, I'll take fries, and for me, of course, it's going to be sweet tea. And then she steps up, and she says, what would you like to have? I'll have a grilled chicken sandwich. Women always eat grilled chicken sandwiches. Have you noticed? And then I will have, what else? I'll have a Diet Coke. Women always order a Diet Coke. I've decided they, that they think that a Diet Coke just takes care of whatever it else is that they're going to eat. But then the moment of, of um, consternation came. I'd say, you don't want some fries? I'll just have a couple of yours. <laughs> Folks, that's a lie from the pits of hell. I'm sorry, sweetheart, because I proved it. No, 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 don't shake your head. I proved it. <clears throat> now, us guys, when the fries come, we grab like a fistful, right, and put them in. Ladies pick out one. But she can work through the whole batch of those French fries, one French fry at a time. And I proved it one day. I bought one. You know, I would say, I'll buy you your own. You, I, you can get a large, whatever. Oh, no, no, I, 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 I could never eat that many. Yes, she can. Huh? It is the truth. Someone has to stand up for the men of America, and I'm ready to do it today. I bought one order of French fries, and I put it right smack dab in the middle of the table. And she, you know, reached in. She got one. And I was determined, I'm not going to eat one. Folks, by the time we finished that meal, every French fry was gone. <laughs> but here's, here's a couple of points I want to make with all that. Number one, the hungry will eat. The hungry will eat. Probably in the top three reasons people say they want to leave a church is I'm just not being fed. To which I always want to say, I don't. Somebody has to feed you. You're not responsible enough to feed yourself. I'm just not being fed. And so I finally realized one day, you know what? When you're hungry, you will eat. When you're hungry, you will eat. The hungry will eat. And the other thing I want you to understand is this. <clears throat> when we would sit there, maybe I ordered a biggie size fry. Maybe, the, maybe uh, the burger filled me up and I only had just a few fries. I'm really willing to share my French fries when I'm full. When you're full, you will share. The hungry will eat, and when you are full, you will share. Jesus said, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. He's going to give you power. And you power for what? Power to be my witnesses. If we're not witnessing, it's probably an indication that we're not full. Because when you are full, dear one, you will share. Yeah. 
You will be his witness when you are full of the Holy Spirit. And listen to this. When the Spirit of God fills you, he might even take you back to the same environments that used to bring you down. But there will be a difference in you. You're not the normal you were before. You got in the phone booth and you came out. There's a difference. You will now have a new backbone you did not have before when you're full of the Holy Ghost. Can't you just hear Jesus saying, you know who, uh, you know who I want to preach right after I fill you with the Holy Spirit? I'm going to pick, um, pick Peter. Denying Peter is who I'm going to pick. And, and not only that, Peter, I want you to preach right in the very city where you became a denier. So when the Spirit comes, you're going to receive power, which means these roots are touching fire, though they want to kill me on top. But when the Spirit comes, you will not just be His witness, you will do witnessing. That You will not just do it, you will be His witness. And, and, and to Peter, he was saying, and you will be my witness, here it is, in Jerusalem. Right where you denied me to a young girl. Only guess what, Peter? This time, instead of you denying me three times, I'm going to give you 3,000 converts when you preach. Because what is happening on the inside of you is greater than what's happening on top of you or anywhere around you. Church, I don't know if you're getting this part or not, but when the Spirit of God comes upon you and fills you, He can also send you back to the place of your greatest failure. You and I would vote no. I don't, want, I don't even want to drive back to that place. But when the Spirit of God comes upon you and he fills you, he may very, as he did to Peter, he may very well send you back to the place of your greatest failure and still perform his mighty works through you for the glory and honor of the name of Jesus. It can happen. But in order for you to stand, in order for you to have backbone, you've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So how does this happen? Something crazy going to happen? Well, let me just give it to you the way Jesus said it. Let's see what the Bible says. Luke chapter 11, verse 9. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. So now, let's put this in context. Verse 10. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It's nothing that I can do for you. It's nothing that any of our pastors on staff can do for you. It's nothing that our altar workers can do for you. It's just very simply you asking your heavenly Father who loves you and longs to give you a good and perfect gift, custom fit for you, just ask him to fill you with his Holy Spirit. And here's what I find interesting as I bring this to a close. I don't think it's by accident that he says, if you ask for a fish, will you get a snake? Or if you ask for an egg, will you get a scorpion? I don't think it's an accident. Notice the words that Jesus deliberately uses for food. He didn't pick steak. He didn't pick lamb. None, none of that. When Jesus uses fish and egg right here in this passage, 
They are two staple foods of that day. And so here's what I see. The Holy Spirit is not a luxury. It is a necessity. Say that with me. The Holy Spirit is not. And we need him every single day. Can you say amen to that? Stand with me, church, would you please? Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. Good, the superlative, nothing can be better. Perfect, the usable, custom fit. It's useful for your specific moment today, the specific season that you are in right now. And I, here's what I want us to do this morning. I want everybody in the house, whether you have ever done this before or it's your first time, can you just lift your hands? If you, if you just do this, that's okay. Nobody's watching. I want us to lift our hands before the Lord. This is Pentecost Sunday. And I want us to say, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Can you say that right now? Come on. Ask the Lord to fill you with his Holy Spirit. Come on, church. I can't hear you. Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. I need you today, Lord, like I've never needed you before. God, with what we're facing, we need your Holy Spirit, and we need you to fill us today. Lord, what we're saying is let there not be one empty spot inside my heart, inside our hearts. None of us, not one empty place. We need you to fill us. We're saying, Lord, fill us completely. We need your power. And Lord, not only that, but we are going to be your witness. And we say it in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Yeah, come on, just give him praise this morning in the house. With your hands lifted, just bless the Lord. You know, there's this uh, instinct that God gives you when you're a pastor. Doesn't mean you're right all the time, occasionally. But I had a, an instinct or just a nudge yesterday as I was finalizing my, my plans to share with you today, and that is this. You know... The truth is probably the best thing that could happen to us as a church is for there to be persecution. I'm not asking for it, and I don't want it. But we see what happens when the church goes through difficult times. It strengthens, it grows, and it draws us closer to God, which is by far the better. But because we have managed to live most of us our lives without severity of persecution, there's something that can tend to happen to us. And that is we just, see, these hearts of ours, they're prone to wander. If we don't keep it in check, they're prone to wander. And I know that this, I think it's possible there's some in the house today, you don't have to identify yourself, I'm not going to bring you to the front, I'm not going to do any of that. Some maybe just need to pray and say, Lord, I'm not even sure I'm hungry for you. Maybe you're at the place where you say, God, I don't want to be estranged from you. I don't want to be apart from you. But I'm not sure I can identify that I truly have a hunger or have a thirst for you. So maybe on this Pentecost Sunday for you, it's just saying, when you say, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit, you're also saying, Lord, I need you to rekindle a hunger for you within my heart. I don't know where it's gone. I don't know how it's gone. I don't know the circumstances that have taken it away. I just know that I'm just not sure I'm hungry for you as I have been. Either the spirit of the age has gotten a hold of me in ways I didn't realize. Other influences have come upon me that 
crept in that had more effect than I realized, whatever the case is. And so I'm going to ask you to lift your hands one more time. I'm going to pray a very simple prayer. Lord, for those of us in the house today, would you instill within us once again a hunger for you. Make us hungry for you. Lord, take it to the point of we're starving for you. Because if it brings us to the point of realizing we need you more than anything else and above all else, let us be hungry for you, hungry for your word, hungry for time with you in prayer. Make us hungry for you, Lord Jesus. Make us hungry for you. And here's a promise we have from Luke 1.53, that he has filled the hungry with good things. Good, the superlative good. Psalm 107.9, I found this this morning. For he satisfies the longing soul and he fills the hungry soul with goodness. I want you to just say out loud with me, Lord, make me hungry again. Do it right now. Come on, Lord, make me hungry. Like, make me hungry for you. Because nothing satisfies like you do, Jesus. So make us hungry for you in the name of Jesus. And the church said amen. I want you to know tonight in the prayer service, time of worship, testimonies, but we're going to be praying for those who are saying, I want specific prayer to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If that's you, if there's a hunger within you, you get to that service tonight because we're going to get an opportunity to pray for you in Jesus' name.